I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Yeah, it's really a great pleasure to uh, be here with uh, Chris. I first encountered his work uh, years and years ago when uh, I was a university student still in Germany at the, at the Friedrich Schiller University uh, of Jena, where I was really amazed at the quality of the scholarship and at the caliber of staff that they got there. But it was all a little bit stuffy and a little bit dry, and people just didn't seem to be able to make all of the topics I was fascinated by and with, particularly 19th century history, um, as interesting as I felt it was. So that it was always, you know, sentences had to be four, four sort of lines long to be, to be academic enough, and, and people's lectures were also a little bit dry. And along comes Chris uh, with his Iron Kingdom, um, and I was absolutely gobsmacked at the fact that it was possible to be erudite and scholarly and, and a really good researcher and at the same time um, very witty and human and, and engaging with, with one's work. Um, and I found that truly an inspiration at the time and I feel with this work, uh, Chris has done it again. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. If you, like me, like your audiobooks, apart from buying a signed copy later um, from Chris, uh, do treat yourself to the audiobook. Chris, Chris reads it himself, um, and I, I've had him in my ears for, for weeks now. Uh, I think it was something like 33 and a half hours of, <laughs> of Chris talking <laughs> about um, the, the 19th century, which is brilliant. Um, and, and I really enjoyed it, um, and so I, I can genuinely recommend that. Um, so with that, I wanted to start maybe giving those uh, among you who haven't really um, had a chance to look at the book yet and start reading it yet, just a little bit of a flavor of the, of the types of things that I'm talking about when I'm saying he sort of really brings the, the history to life. So one of the things that really struck me personally um, in the book was, um, of course, once again, this, this conflict between um, Germany or German nationalists and, and French nationalists at the time and this kind of... Uh, back and forth between them at the time and how they are trying to build up their own uh, kind of sense of nationhood via the kind of enemy image of the others. So I was particularly struck with that chapter. But there's one little um, sort of anecdote in that that literally made me spit up my coffee on the tube when, when Chris was telling it to me <laughs> uh, through my earphones. And so I thought I'd share that, that little flavor of the book uh, with you today. So this is um, about the kind of quasi-mythical... Um, sort of symbolism of the River Rhine between uh, Germany and France and the way that, that this is kind of played out again and again throughout the 19th century to rally the troops, as it were, quite literally in some cases, um, over this particular geographical feature. So there's one really famous um, 
song about this, the Rheinlied, the, the Song of the Rhine, um, by Nicolas Becker, which has been set to music um, hundreds of times. Um, and uh, I thought I knew it well, but then I had it read to me by Chris in his wonderful translation. I want to share that with you quickly. So this is, this is a sort of German nationalist piece to try and really kind of get people excited about the River Rhine and its, its mythical role in German um, in nationalism. They shall, not have a, they shall not ever have it, our free and German Rhine, though they, like greedy ravens, cry out, it's mine, it's mine. As long as it meanders in its flowing dress of green, as long as on its gentle waves a rowing boat is seen, they shall not ever have it, our free and German Rhine, as long as our hearts take comfort in its sweet and fiery wine. So this is the German piece. The bit that made me spit out my coffee is the following. In the manner of a 1990s, this is Chris talking now in between, in the manner of a 1990s battle rapper, the poet, novelist, and Parisian dandy Alfred de Musée um, replied to Becker's ditty with, the, with these backhanded uh, parodic stanzas. And now comes the, the French retort. We once did have your German Rhine, we put it in a glass. And does a song as anodyne, as yours erase the bloodstained sign of Frenchman's hoof prints on your ass? <laughs> See, this is why <laughs> we once did have your German Rhine, and if your history you forgot, ask your young girls, for they have not. It was they who entertained us with your undistinguished wine. Um, so, you know, it's these kinds of little human bits. You could have had a long and, and boring and dry kind of analysis of, of just how hostile and how sort of um, unhealthy this conflict had become and, and in the leader particularly of the of the revolutions of 1848 and instead you're getting you're getting that analysis as well but it isn't dry it's kind of filled with these little snippets with with sort of human stories putting a human face on it um, so without further ado let's let's get to it let's talk about your your book um, in the first place what what did why did you write it now what interested you personally in in this kind of revolution of 1848 well, first of all, thank you for those wonderful words of introduction. And thank you all for coming here um, to this amazing bookshop, which I've always loved. Um, I think that um, I, I've really always been thinking about 1848. I, I can scarcely remember when I wasn't. Though I must say, when I first encountered it, I wasn't very um, enthusiastic about it. And that was because at school, um, we, we were taught by our teacher, and I still remember this class very clearly. Uh, it, this was in Sydney, Australia, and he explained to us, boys, the 1848 revolutions are complicated and they're a failure. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I remember thinking, wow, complexity and failure are a really unattractive combination. Um, you know, if something's complicated but a huge success, yes, it's worth the trouble of finding out about it. But if it's, um, if it's, if it's complicated and a failure, no. Um, but... Over time, I began, I mean, the, the, the memory of these classes on 1848 and the stuff that we read, you know, fairly just, just snippets at that time, um, sort of stayed with me. And it, it became more and more clear to me that 1848 was actually an enormous event. Um, and it was an event that left a really deep mark on everybody who took part in it. That's part of it, that it, it created memories and experiences that were remembered for the entire sort of lifetimes of the people who were part of it. And there's endless evidence of this. I mean, of people never being able to forget the euphoria of the first phase of the revolution, for example. So firstly, that it was for the people who took part in it, an almost unimaginably enormous event. And secondly, that it had, far from being a failure, it actually had quite profound effects. 
Um, and you could measure these just if you just take a very cursory look at the consequences of 1848. It created new parliaments, which hadn't existed before. It created parliaments in states which had been absolute monarchies. Um, and you know, there are some obvious ones like Prussia, for example, gets a parliament and a constitution. It had never had one before. Piedmont, the most important state in Italy at the time, the northern, most powerful and important state in northern Italy, it gets a parliament and a constitution. But also the state of Denmark, which had been an absolute monarchy, gets um, a constitution and a parliament as a result of the revolutions. And to this day, the Danish constitution is a somewhat amended version of the constitution seeded in 1849. And the Danes have a national um, you know, sort of um, a national festival day, which is free, where they remember this constitution, the, the June constitution of 1849. The modern Swiss nation-state is a product of 1848. Its constitution and its state structure um, date back to those revolutions. So it turns out to be a much more consequential, you know, tumult than, than this notion of complexity and failure would suggest. And I realized, well, actually, we haven't even, be, you know, it's not, you don't even begin to get a handle on these events if you think of them as a failure. They are, of course, complex. That's true. But um, as I got in, started getting into the revolutions and trying to make sense of them, I realized that you could make that complexity work for you, even in, in a narrative way. You can make the complexity into something interesting. Complexity doesn't have to... After all, we all have to live with complexity. In fact, we're living with more and more of it every day um, right now, I mean, at this point in history. And people in, the, in, in 1848 had to live with very high levels of complexity, by which I mean a kind of constant din of competing messages from endless different sources of information and political argument and so on, a sort of cacophony of politics and communication, which they found very disorienting, just as we find um, you know, public communications and social media disorienting today. So you could make the complexity work um, by showing how complexity pressed on people, the kind of pressure that it exerted on people, and how difficult it was to make decisions and to, to gauge the general direction of travel in an environment where people are behaving in complex ways and responding to complex, complex messages. So that was another reason for coming back to it. And a third related point was that, and this only became relevant really when I really got down to starting to work on the book, and you know, I was, it was the, it was, COVID struck, and actually, you know, I didn't do this because I, I'm aware that many people died of COVID, including my father. But um, nevertheless, I, I ought to have thanked COVID uh, in, in, my, in, my, um, in, my, in the book because the, the, the pandemic created a kind of, you know, uh, a, an, an amount of a time and a, an environment of deceleration, which uh, made it possible to think through this complexity in, in ways that in, enabled me to make sense of the event as a whole. But as I was doing that, the, com the, 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 the parallels between then and now became more and more apparent to me. And one thing that really struck me was the, you know, the event in, um, on the Capitol, the invasion of the chamber on the Capitol, um, which is a very shocking event, and we all remember it and so on. Well, on the 15th of May, 1848, a crowd of radicals broke into, uh, who felt very disappointed by the election results and felt it was a sham and a fraud, broke into the French Chamber of Deputies and demanded that the parliament be shut down and a new government be created and threatened various uh, parliamentarians and so on. And, you know, Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, this, he was sitting in the chamber at the time and he describes these people coming in and screaming and shouting about various different things. And um, he says he overheard one of them pointing up at an elderly deputy who happened to be wearing a Dominican habit because he was a Dominican friar. 
a man called La Cordaire, and this man pointed at the the man and his uh, at the the elderly man and his Dominican habit and said, "Look at that old bird up there! I should dearly like to wring his neck." And Tocqueville then writes, "I was very amused by this, and it it, it tells us something of the poetry that slumbers in the heart of the working man." <laughs> <laughs> and then he went on to say, mind you, uh, he was quite right. I mean, when one looked up at Cordaire, he did really look rather like a bird. <laughs> um, that's Tocqueville, always ambivalent, you know. But anyway, um, and I thought, you know, it's the QAnon shaman, mm. you know. I, was, I saw the QAnon shaman in my head and I was seeing this man wanting to twist the neck of La Cordaire and I thought, it's the same thing. Mm. And, and of course, it's not the same thing because these people were you know, discontented radicals who'd been disappointed by the consequence of the expansion of the suffrage in 1848. Uh, and the people who broke into the capital were disappointed sort of Trumpists who were, you know, furious about the outcome of the election. But the formal similarity is interesting, the mirroring, even though the political content is so different. In fact, in many ways, it's diametrically opposed. Nevertheless, the fact that we're looking at an era where the respect for parliaments and their members uh, is in decline and where the slow low deliberative politics of parliaments, which, which is such a valuable thing and such a hard-won achievement, is now under attack from social media and from various forms of superheated fast politics like, like Trump's, you know, 3 a.m. in the morning tweets, you know, as soon as he, the first time he goes to the loo, which I think is pretty early, <laughs> um, out goes a tweet. And, you know, the news cycle has been, you know, he tried to heat the news cycle up to the point where the time of, of Trump-style executive politics, you know, became a completely different temporality from the slow deliberative time of you know congress and the same thing has happened to many parliaments in other places so the more i thought about this the more it seemed to me that there was a kind of you know some sort of resonance between there's there's no such thing as repetitions in history but that there was a resonance between now and then yeah. which i thought made 1848 so much more interesting um it's not the reason for doing the book but it's a reason for i suppose it's a reason why we might find it interesting to think again about the people and the predicaments of 1848. Yeah, I completely agree. I was really struck by how many themes there are in the book. I mean, we're talking what, over 150 years now between then and, and now. And there are so many themes in there that, you know, I, I had these moments, just like you were saying about, about Trump and Parliament, I had these moments where I thought, we still haven't moved on. There are these kind of really fundamental problems that people are trying to grapple with in, in 1848. And they're very much the same still now, or have kind of maybe moved on in terms of the technology and the way that we live, but the actual patterns haven't changed all that much. So one of the things that, that really struck a chord with me was when um, a sort of group of, of German reformers were talking about uh, how there's a fundamental clash between kind of intellectualism and, and radical and reformist ideas and the very fundamental needs of the people. So the way that they summed it up was there's this clash between Pressefreiheit, freedom to, to read, and Fressefreiheit, the freedom to feed. And mm. they're saying that this kind of, you know, conflict between people at the top, kind of the, what we now, I suppose, call the, the metropolitan elites, have got all these ideas of how, how things should be done. And, and meanwhile, people are struggling to kind of just live their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. So did you find any kind of social echoes as well in, in the way when you were researching it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the revolution is shot through with um, a moral panic around uh, issues like poverty, um, but it's not just poverty, it's the sense that, I mean, people use the term pauperization, by which, uh, pauperisation, pauperisation, there were lots of different versions of this, but what they've captured with the abstraction 
was something different from poverty. The idea was there had always been poverty, there had always been poor people, but pauperization referred to something else, namely the tendency of entire sectors of society to drift into deeper and deeper poverty, even though they were working. So it was the equivalent of today's debates about the working poor, people who are working every hour that the day sends, but who are still not able to have a dignified life and not able to you know, provide opportunities, suitable opportunities for their children, or adequate opportunities for their children, and so on. So that was the problem. And there are a lot of very precise analogies, um, including the sort of slightly panicky sense of you know, what was going on and the reluctance to, you know, the, the difficulty of having to, to, to talk with people like this. It's a very third, it was a very third-person discourse. They live in terrible dwellings. They live in filth. Their children wriggle in filthy beds. You know, their houses stink. You know, their food is terrible. And it was always they, they, they. It's the, people, the people caught up in this moral panic were looking at them from a, from a, a sort of position of middle-class panic, basically. And I thought there are so many parallels there, but also in the diagnostic language of today where you hear, for example, I was very struck when I was looking around at how people are sort of trying to make sense of today's political and social tumults. And um, I thought of, you know, the, the argument that's been made by, made by Ross Douthat in the, in the, I think it's in, it was in the Washington Post actually, that, um, you know, that the working classes, uh, the, the, the precarious classes, the precariat, exists in a, in a world which is terra incognita to the kinds of people who read newspapers. Now, this is the sort of thing, exactly the sort of thing people talked about in the 1840s. There was a literature called the, the Mysteries Literature, Les Mystères du Paris, the Mysteries of Paris, which was about the poor districts of Paris that nobody knew except the people who lived in them. The Mysteries of Breslau, the Mysteries of Berlin, they multiplied. Almost every city had its own book of mysteries, and the mysteries referred to the poorest working class areas. Um, the idea being that the kind of people who were reading these books were not the kind of people who would ever walk in those streets. So this sense that society is losing its cohesion, that it's drifting apart into completely different worlds of experience, um, was very present in the 1840s. And I think it's, you know, very present now. But it's interesting what you were saying, you know, about some things, it, they feel like a continuity, like a problem that we've never really solved. Um, and other things, I think, uh, other parallels between now and then have to do with the fact that they had not yet entered something and we are now tumbling out of it. And so we're like them because we're like bookends at opposite ends of something. And that's, that thing that we're at opposite ends of is something that you could call modernity or high modernity. So if you think of the way politics is organized, the later 19th and the 20th century saw the rise of la very large very well financed and very authoritative political parties that could discipline their memberships. Um, that didn't exist in 1848. There were, if you think of socialism, there was no socialist party. There were hundreds of socialisms. It was like a meadow full of, you know, hundreds of different flowers uh, to sort of misuse Mao's um, metaphor. But, um, you know, so this is before the era of the great political parties. And in a way, we are emerging from the era of the great political parties whose authority is breaking up, everything is in flux, the national television audience doesn't exist anymore, the national radio audience, national newspapers are hard to come by, you know, everything is fragmenting again. The world is becoming more like the world of 1848. So that's another reason, I think, why these revolutions uh, sort of repay our interest now in a way that maybe they wouldn't have or didn't uh, when I was at school learning about how complicated and <laughs> how, what failures they were. <laughs> 
Um, but one thing that struck me as a, as a difference there, despite the fact that the patterns are quite similar, is the utter fascination that people had with, with poverty. So there is, I mean, you describe it as an inbuilt feature. There's a figure that you give for Prussia, I think something at 40 to 60 percent of the Prussian population live under sort of substance, subsistence level, basically. So it's there, it's everywhere, people can see it, and yet there seems to be an utter, almost voyeuristic interest in this. So people go into the very poor areas in, in cities, into the slums, you get very graphic de de depictions and descriptions of, of what these slums are like. And yet you have the conservative end of even then of the of the spectrum saying this is almost like a preordained kind of situation. The poor are poor because they're poor and it's always going to be that way. Um, but it seems to me that fascination for poverty for like different social classes has waned somewhat. And now there isn't as much of an interest in that. Would you did you find that as well in your in your research? Well, yes. I mean, the the in the 1840s, there's this um, phenomenal expansion of interest in the poor and um, it starts as a sort of a, a, a factual literature of reportage with tables and details and statistics. And, you know, Engels is one example of this, but there are numerous examples of medical experts and so on writing about the condition of workers in Edinburgh, in London, the Irish hand, handloom weavers and so on. But you get similar books right across the continent. Um, and it's, it, it, it wields such a sort of magnetic field, this, this literature, that it springs over into fiction. So then you have fictional works like, like Les Mystères de Paris by Eugène Sue, which appeared over many, many months in sort of Dickens style in, um, in you know, what do you call them? Um, sequels in, in, in a long series of, what do they call when you... Periodical? In periodical, yeah, in, in periodical series. Um, and, you know, endless other books about uh, the people who inhabit these areas and so on. And then you, ha you have the beginning of really sophisticated um, poverty statistics where people start calculating average life expectancies. And there's a wonderful study of the city of Nantes, which I got very interested in, which makes the point that the average uh, life expectancy of people living in the Quai Turin, which is a very nice street on the river with lots of sunlight and so on, with expensive houses, was about 72. And the average life expectancy of people living in the uh, Rue des Fumiers, which is the, one of the poorest streets, was 35. So, and this author goes on to say, how can it be that you can walk a few hundred meters, you're still in the same quarter, and you've got into an area where people live half as long as they do a few hundred meters away? So this interest in, in what poverty means and questions like, for example, which I don't think have gone away, questions like whether social inequality um, is something inherited from an earlier era, which is what conservatives were saying, or whether it was something being generated by what was called the modern industrial system, we would now call it capitalism. Those, that question was a very central question about which, on which to which people had different answers. But what's interesting about today is that, you know, we're now once again in an era where there is deep and worried interest in, in inequality. That was not the case 15 years ago. But if you look at the response to Thomas Piketty's book, Capital, regardless of what you think, and I know the book is controversial, but the phenomenon of, of interest, the book sold hundreds of thousands of copies. It's a massive, extremely technical, densely footnoted book. And it's caused great waves of, there have been disagreements and so on about it, but this interest in inequality is back. And that's another thing that I think you know, connects our moment with theirs. Mm. I think um, apart from sort of the, the social causes that you describe for the uh, revolutions that eventually kind of spill over into violence, um, the other, well, not necessarily the other side, it's obviously linked, but the other side I found really interesting is kind of the, all of the ideas that come out of this. So mm. you have this really potent mix of 
socialism, liberalism, you know, you've got the monarchists, you've got conservative forces, and it all seems to sort of play off each other until it kind of comes to this crescendo in, in 1848. Um, and one thing that I found particularly interesting, and maybe that's more kind of a time-specific issue, is the relationship of the thinkers at the time to the French Revolution, because it seems to cast such a long shadow into the 19th yeah. century. And I've got a, a good quote here from you where, where you said in the book that the liberals, quote, like the revolution of 1789, but abhorred the revolution of 1793. So there's really kind of this idea that it had all gone wrong at the time, that there was this kind of chance to create something new. Um, could you maybe talk a little bit about yeah, the relationship absolutely. of the two revolutions? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really central theme. I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, the French Revolution is like a film flickering at the back of everybody's heads. And they all have different... The interesting thing is they don't have the same stories in their heads. They have many different narratives. So the French Revolution doesn't speak with one voice. It's a, it's a complex revolution with many chapters. And um, people remember this sequence of chapters in different ways and draw different lessons from it. So, as you were saying, some, for liberals, you know, the idea is it started nicely but then went terribly, terribly wrong. Um, and conservatives take that view as well. The difference being that liberals say, we as mid-19th century liberals have learned not to retrace those steps. We could have a revolution, but then our moderation would ensure that no Jacobin dictatorship, no terrorist dictatorship would follow. Whereas conservatives would say, uh-uh, Every time a revolution happens, it follows the same circular path. We'll start with nice liberals saying, you can have, you know, we'll have, we'll have a free press, and it'll end with terrible radicals, you know, trying to strangle your children in their beds. <laughs> um, so it's, people draw different, extract different. There are also genuine Robespierreists on the far left who are reading the, the, the writings of Robespierre and are celebrating the Jacobin dictatorship. So people are, you know, are playing this revolution through in many, many different ways in their heads. But it's present there as well as a kind of um, trauma for many people. I mean, Guizot, for example, the man who falls in 1848 having in, uh, as a result of the February Revolution in Paris, having failed to concede the demand for franchise extension, uh, his father was guillotined when he was five years old in his, in his home city of Nîmes. And this is an experience, I mean, it seems almost too obvious to say, an experience that left a profound mark on him. And he remained throughout his life you know, deeply opposed to, um, to capital punishment. And in fact, it's very striking that several of the new constitutions created in 1848 outlaw capital punishment. The, the Constitution of the Roman Republic does so, of 1849, and so does the Declaration of Islas, the, the, Rome, the Romanian, the Wallachian Constitution. Romania didn't yet exist, but the Wallachian Constitution also outlaws capital punishment. And these are echoes of the sort of traumatic memories of the French Revolution, which was remembered, among other things, for the huge numbers of people executed on the orders of the revolutionary tribunals. So the French Revolution is just everywhere. It's part of Marx's reading of the 1848 revolutions. Tocqueville refer, refers to it constantly. Everybody who leaves, you know, written testimony um, thinks about the connection between the two revolutions. And this is the great, in a way, it makes 1848 so much more interesting because, you know, in 1789, people didn't have that equipment in their heads. But in 1848, they know that this is not the first time. That's a really important difference because they can historicize everything they see. And this, I think, helps to explain why so many of the people who took part in this revolution uh, seem to be in a position, scarcely have they, have they experienced it, but they're writing history books about it. I mean, the number of history books written by people who are tied up in these revolutions is absolutely extraordinary. And there's a man called, for example, called Etienne Thomas, 
who was a, a graduate of engineering, who was asked to take over the, the Atelier National, the national workshops in Paris, where unemployed men were being paid a rather miserable dole and put to work doing not very useful things to keep them off the streets during the sort of hot months of the revolution. And after this system was shut down, um, he almost immediately wrote a history of the, of the national workshops. Uh, and this history appeared, I think it's late October or early November 1848. So within months, he'd produced a book of all the, all, 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 over 400 pages in length with footnotes and tables and all that kind of thing. The most extreme example is a person who wrote a book called The Last Days of the Austrians in Milan, which came out a week and a half after the Austrians had been driven out of Milan. <laughs> and I took a look at this book, and I have to say, it's very impressive when you see the title. When you read the book, you can see, actually, <laughs> you could write this book in about two days because it's, uh, it's mainly official announcements and so on. But, I mean, the readiness to, to leap into print and to frame things in historical narrative is incredible. It's the most garrulous, most talkative revolution of all times. And that's one of the things which is really thrilling and charming about it, is that you can hear the voices of all these people. It, it is something that struck me as well, particularly in the build-up to it. So the way that people theorize about the different movements and how far each of them has progressed or kind of regressed in some cases, um, the way that new political ideas come out of this, and also the desire almost to formalize these things. So when you think about, I don't know, the Communist Manifesto, for example, yeah. or the many clubs that you describe, you know, with their, with their kind of really official, you know, sort of founding foundation documents where parties are formed, clubs are formed, and, and people try and organize these sorts of movements. So would you characterize the revolutions as a kind of politicized uh, version of the social turmoil that was there? Or is it the other way around? So are the, are the social causes being politicized? Or is this a political revolution that really just makes use of the social causes that are already, already there? I think both things are happening. I think um, it's a really interesting question. I, I mean, everywhere in the revolution, um, impoverished workers are central to the initial phase of the revolution. So when you look at the lists of people who are killed on the barricades in Berlin, for example, or are killed in the streets of Vienna, um, or in the, in the crushing of the revolution in, in Vienna again in, in October, um, the great majority are people of the, they're not, it's, I mean, the term working class is of dubious value in this setting, but they're people who work with their hands, a lot of them are skilled workers, but the, the workers who predominate are people who are trainee skilled workers. They're not people. They're not master artisans. Most of them who own who have a workshop of their own. Uh, those people really are, are not proletarians. They're something else. But they are people who are journeymen or apprentices or they're laborers of various kinds um, who are who are killed in the actual violence with with the troops. So um, their distress is crucial to the dynamics of the revolution. There's also another way in which social distress connects with politics, and that is that, you know, in this immense um, debate and uh, driven by anxiety and panic about, about poverty, um, that debate has a politicizing effect as it drives people. It, it was very important to Marx, this debate over the, for example, over what had caused this very, um, this, this desperate revolt by weavers in Silesia, which resulted in a very bloody um, suppression by the Prussian army. Um, Marx 
disagreed with various people who he'd been quite cl close to, among others the, the socialist Arnold Ruger, um, about you know how to read this this tumult, and that you know is an important sort of establishing moment for Marx's later evolution. And Engels's writing on poverty in England, for example, is very important to establishing his position, and also provides a kind of reservoir of empirical observations from which the, the two authors draw when they write the Communist Manifesto. So these social questions can't be separated from politics. And finally, there's the fact that as soon as you get drawn into a revolution, whether you're a student radical or just someone, they're, they're, one of the things that really fascinated me about these revolutions was that people in a revolution have to find a public voice. They have to stand up on a box or on a lamp post or climb up on some structure so they're above the rest of the crowd and they have to say something to the crowd. And people often don't know how to do that. and they're, they're not sure they can. And so stage fright and the terror of public appearing before a public um, are part of the story of the revolutions. And one example that I found very affecting was that of the radical Berlin law student, Paul Boner, who saw there were, there were, there were people speaking, giving you know, rousing speeches from a, um, a podium in a place called Die Zelten in central Berlin, where, where there were huge crowds had gathered. And uh, there was a largely radical constituency there. And he went to the, he, he felt that he was desperate to say something. So he said, can you let me onto the podium? I, I want to speak. And so they let him up. And he said, he stood there, his heart thudding like that. And he said, in front of me, I saw the crowd. Like He said, like a, a sort of knot of darkness, right? And, uh, and I felt that it was like someone had tightened a leather thong around my neck, my throat. And he tried to speak. He, he said, I simply couldn't speak. And people started saying, boring, boring. And the man said, oh, you better get off, young man. And see, see, you know, we'll try again some other time. So he goes down feeling incredibly embarrassed and, um, and listens to a couple of other speakers. And then he, he thinks, now I really have to speak. And he says, please let me up again. I, I've, I, I found my voice. So they say, OK. They let him up. And he wants to say, he, he wants to tell them the, the message he wants to get across is, yes, there's been a revolution in France, but here in Berlin, we don't need to copy the revolution in France. We can have our own revolution, right? And that's, if anybody who'd been with him to give him advice, they might have said, that's a little over complex. You know, keep it in the act, but don't open with it. But, um, but anyway, no one was there to advise him. So he stood up there and he said, We've lived through 33 years of tyranny. That was the year since 1815, right? Ah, huge roar of applause. And he thought, this is great. The people love me. And he said, let's not imitate the revolution in France. Boo! And then they said, get off the stage. Get him off. Get him off. Because they thought he was a counter-revolutionary. And he was saying, no, no, I'm trying to explain that we should. And then he said, off you go, young man. It's not, really wor it's not working for you today. Let's try again some other time. So anyway... You know, it wasn't always easy to be that person, a revolutionary. You had to find a voice, and not everybody found that easy to do. And that's part of the process, which I think you mentioned, you know, a politicized or a politicizing event. I think one of the most interesting things about revolutions is the very experience of revolution is an apprenticeship in political activism, which in many cases, you know, shapes people for the rest of their lives. And these apprenticeship effects even if you know you have situations where the revolutionaries are swept from power and there's a very violent um, suppression of the revolution movement as there was with the execution of many leading revolutionaries as you have in uh, a place like Vienna for example or in the context of the suppression of the Hungarian independence war nevertheless when you know liberal and progressive and radical elites reemerge 
um, uh, uh, five or six or ten years later, that they are those people who had passed through the revolution. So the revolutionaries are not, as one historian put it, they're not a lost generation. Mm. They do resurface, and they're all marked by this experience of 1848-49. I find the idea really interesting of it being a kind of apprenticeship in, in vocalising perhaps, you know, trends and, and patterns that have been around for a while but then ex expressing them in political terms and in, in activist terms in many ways as well. And, and one group I think that for, the, for whom that's really true is women. I mean, yeah. there's so many women in your book and they're not kind of there because you found some curious case somewhere to make a point about be women being in the book. They're so present at the barricades, in the depictions of the, mm. of the revolutions, in the writings, some of them extremely radical in their ideas about not just politics but also you know relationships sex even you have this kind of really long debate with I forget her name now who, who's sort of talking about the liberation that she wants to to bring about kind of being free of marriage and, and having sort of you know promiscuous relationships as other people saw at the time it's a, it's a really interesting way in which even women are sort of in these revolutions finding their voice and seeing that as some sort of apprenticeships and in, apprenticeship in terms of how they can express themselves and be heard by, by others, men mostly. Absolutely. I mean, women are a fascinating strand of this revolution, because, partly because the, the most radical of them are, belong among the most radical voices of all. Mm. And one of the reasons why they're so radical is because they rightly see that patriarchy is a more deeply entrenched and anchored form of discrimination than any of the others. You know, we're looking at, I mean, racial discrimination is a profound feature of this, of this world as well. But in the early 1830s, you know, there's, there's been an abolition of the, of the slave trade by, um, you know, through the, through the British Parliament. Of course, it's very slow to have any effect on the lives of the enslaved. Um, but women have not seen any change at all. There's, feudalism is already crumbling and the, and the peasants are on the, on the brink of being emancipated and all sorts of social changes afoot. And these women activists make the point that for us, nothing is happening at all. You know, it still says in the French constitution, the man protects the wife, the wife obeys the husband. Um, the reference in, in, the, in the French constitution is to citoyens, and uh, citizens, but it's quite made quite clear in the body of the constitution that the rights granted to citizens apply only to men and not to women. So you have these uh, writers, I mean, they didn't call themselves feminists, but that's effectively what they were, writers on, on, you know, for women's rights, saying if the citizen, citizens referred to in the constitution are only male, then doesn't that mean that the female population of France has no monarch? It's, it's effectively the French women are living in a republic because there is no monarchy that, that as it were, acknowledges their existence. So, you know, it's a very radical, they, they take very radical positions. They're involved in every phase of the revolution. They're very present in the visual documents of the revolution. One interesting thing is that although they're often not absent in narratives written by men of the revolutionary events, they are present in the drawings that were done by people of the fighting on the barricade because that's the sort of first draft of history. And people were very struck by their presence. I mean, and when I say that, they're not just there saying, would you like some tea? <laughs> they're actually, um, there are lots of women, for example, who have uh, delivered into the hospitals of the cities with, with burned faces from powder burns, uh, from actually firing guns. They're also pouring shot behind the barricades, melting lead and providing the men with shot. 
um, but they're also themselves fighting in many, many cases, and many of them are killed during the fighting. So, you know, there's no question about their presence. It's just that they had sort of, you know, dropped through the net of the narratives, the dominant narratives. But that said, there are a number of women whose accounts of 1848 belong to some of the most, some of the richest testimony we have. I'm thinking here of Marie Dagout, for example, who under a male pseudonym, Daniel Stern, wrote the single best history of the 1848 revolutions, a three-volume study of the, of the revolutions in France, incidentally, not of the whole of Europe, but in France. It's an absolutely superb um, piece of historical analysis. And another example of, you know, is um, the, um, the Princess di Belgioioso, um, a Milanese aristocrat, aristocratic woman, who wrote a superb political analysis of what happened during the revolution of Milan and why the government created by the revolution pr pr uh, proved to be so ineffective. And um, Margaret Fuller, the American journalist and feminist, is another one. She's, she's in Rome during the Roman Republic and writes some of the best, most interesting commentary we have on the events in Rome. And these women are interesting because, and I think their testimonies are interesting, because they are, whereas men refer to each other in these narratives as, you know, liars, radicals, firebrands, reactionaries, whatever, you know, language they find to describe their competitors and their opponents, women see the men involved in politics as men. So they, they and Belgioioso, for example, talking about the, the Milanese provisional government says, you know, when you see a government like this emerging out of the smoke and chaos of a, of a rebellion, you sort of wonder how did this government come about? And you might think there was some great act of election by the people. And she said, no, these men simply did what men do. They walked down to the, the palace, the Palazzo de, whatever it was, and they appointed themselves. And uh, that's what happens, you know. Um, and so there's, it, there's an interesting way in which the fact that there's a sort of sexual apartheid uh, in place in this world of the 19th century, I think that's not an exaggeration. Um, it's a the public space is a terrifying place for women for hundreds and hundreds of reasons. But the fact that there's that separateness enables them to see the events in a way that is denied to men who are, as it were, more easily able to be part of them. Yeah, I think it's one of the many ways in which you sort of deconstruct some of the classic ways in which we see the 1848 revolutions, because people tend to think of male thinkers, male writers, male revolutionaries when they when they think of them. I think another thing that genuinely changed my perspective on this um, is is the great pains as which you um, present them as an international event or international events, rather. So, I mean, I'm, I'm very guilty of this with my German head constantly thinking of 1848 as a German thing, part of, part of my nation's history and a really important one, and one that I was taught at school in the very same way. So in Germany, interestingly, they're not a failure. You know, you see them as kind of the first attempt at German democracy. You know, you've got the whole, like, Paulskirche thing and, and, you know, this entire idea that the, the true, the real German nation, the liberal one, whose colours and, and anthem we still use, was born then, so it becomes part of the national myth-making. Yeah. Um, and you sometimes, in the very same sentence, talk about one pattern in four different countries or regions or cities or villages, making it very clear that these are very international um, sort of things. Why was it so tempting, or why is it so tempting, to see them as part of national history as opposed to... Yeah. So was there something that happened at the time, or is there something that, in hindsight, people try to incorporate into their own histories? I, it's interesting you say that. I think it is a thing that happened in hindsight. Um, I mean, nationalism is part of the 1848 revolutions. It's a very essential part. Um, 
and you know it's one factor among many um, pressing on people's behaviour. Um, but the, there's no question, if you look at the journalism of 1848, for example, that the horizon of awareness was European, that people were thinking about these, these revolutions as jo a joined-up phenomenon. And so when you look at the, you know, and this starts with the events in Switzerland of 1847, there's a kind of a civil war in Switzerland, that's reported on right throughout the progressive press. You know, and you think about the opening words of the, um, of the Communist Manifesto, you know, a, a spectre is haunting Europe. It's not a spectre is haunting Prussia or a spectre is haunting the most retrograde states or the absolutist monarchies. It's Europe as a whole. And, you know, de Tocqueville stands up on the 29th of January before the February Revolution in Paris and says, you know, there are these tumults happening in Sicily. There's a revolution in Sicily. There's a revolution in Naples. Do you seriously think that this revolution is going to stay in Naples and Sicily? Have you not you know, finally understood, he's, he's addressing the ministers of the government, have you not understood that this storm is heading in our direction and that it will soon be in the streets outside these windows? So, you know, the contemporaries understood very well that this was a joined-up, connected European thing. But you're absolutely right. In memory, it got severed and sundered into numerous different national stories. And that's because of the power of the nation-state. The nation-state sucked these revolutions into national... Um, itineraries and national narratives. You know, Viktor Orban uh, mentions the 1848 revolutions of the Hungarians, the revolution of the Hungarian nation, uh, at every opportunity, especially on the, the anniversary day, the 15th of March, most importantly. Um, and he, of course, speaks very warmly about the, and very one-sidedly, about the her heroism of, you know, Sándor Petrofi, the great bard of the uh, Hungarian nation, who was actually a fascinating figure, who wrote what is still the national anthem of the country, or, you know, Kossuth uh, Lajos, the, the, the sort of firebrand national leader and organizer, an ex another extraordinary figure from that revolution. Um, what he doesn't see, of course, is the larger European context. And the fact that of the, the so-called martyrs of Arad who were killed and executed by the Austrians at the end of the Hungarian independence war, only three or four of them could actually speak Magyar. Only three or four could speak Hungarian. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's the... the, the, the revolutions have been misremembered and misunderstood in retrospect as national events. But at the time, they appeared as anything but to those who actually took part in them. Yeah, and it's all, it's all part of the complexity. So maybe just one last question to sort of pull this all together and see where it fits into uh, the European narrative, if you will. So A.G.P. Taylor famously said that 1848 was the turning point for Germany and then the German nation failed to turn. Is that true? And if so, does it apply to the whole of Europe? Or how would you interpret the 1848-49 revolution? Well, I mean, that, that was a typical A.G.P. Taylor thing, <laughs> isn't it? 1848 was the moment when German history, it was the turning point where German history failed to take a turn. And I sort of, what's that supposed to mean? <laughs> so is German history is a kind of, it's an Austin minor or something like that, or a mini minor driving along on a road, and then there's a turn, and instead you just drive through the safety fence into some ploughed, fields or something like that. I mean, what, what is a turning point where history fails to turn? Mm. If history didn't turn, then there wasn't a turning point. So, <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't actually make any sense at all. It's just sort of <laughs> saying that something should have happened that didn't. And, you know, in a way, that's always been our problem with 1848. We, we get very annoyed at that, you know, there wasn't, um, the kings weren't automatic. I mean, one claim that I remember reading in a sort of radical critique, critique of 1848 by a German historian, he said, you know, in 1789 and in 1640, whatever it was in Britain the, during the English Revolution, you know, they, they took off the king's head. Whereas 
1848, they just made the Prussian king take off his hat. That's not <laughs> enough. You've got to take off their heads. And the idea is that, you know, because this revolution didn't single-handedly birth, you know, a, a happy, prosperous, modern democracy, because it didn't wipe out mon absolute monarchy or monarchy altogether, because it didn't, you know, simply pr produce a socially just social order um, all in one fell swoop, it's a failure. But then, of course, there's been no revolution which has ever achieved this. Even the French Revolution, with this fabled decapitation of the royal family, did, uh, although it achieved profound transformations, you know, it was soon swept aside by the Jacobin, you know, the, the constitutional monarchy of 1788, made, 1789, made, made way for the, um, the Republic announced in 1792, and then the terrorist dictatorship of the Jacobins. That, people got sick of that, and then there was the Thermidorian coup against the terror. Then there was the Directory, a period of very high levels of instability and then they brought in um, Napoleon to try and sort of pacify things so you know at what point did the did history take the required turn you know in, in H.P. Taylor's terms there never has been a revolution which as it were you know we have this picture in our heads of a revolution which makes the world anew but that actually doesn't happen the world never is made anew it's always a toilsome, complicated struggle. And we're all trying to make sense of it and all pressing for different things. It's more like a rugby scrum than it is like a, like a rocket flying into the, into the stratosphere. So I suppose we just, the, one of the ideas of the book was, you know, let's try and learn to love the complexity, you know, um, and, and try and understand it and, and, you know, live with it and not, not be panicked by it. Um, because, you know, it is part of the of the richness of political processes of political change is their complexity marx actually was a who, whose whose comments on 1848 i mean his systematic writings are not very helpful for understanding 1848 but his journalism and his you know occasional writings and his his uh his you know what's the word for it um, his caricatural writings like the 18th premier of louis napoleon they are absolutely fabulous and there's a wonderful piece that Marx wrote before 1848. He wrote it in the 1840s. He was commenting on, on the bitter social conflicts around wood and forestry uh, in the Rhineland. And he said in the context of this essay, he said, the, the, the bewildering multi, multifacetedness of the world is a function of the one-sidedness of its countless components. And it sounds oracular, but what he meant by that was, the world isn't complicated because our problems are so complicated. The world is complicated because each of us has our own, we cling to our own view of what that problem is and how it should be solved. If you, if you, think, if you think of something like, you know, climate change, climate change actually isn't that complicated. What's complicated is the political task of getting people to agree on how to tackle it. And that was what Marx meant. And 1848 is an object lesson and that kind of human political complexity. That's why I think it's so, well, for me anyway, it was so interesting and so rewarding to immerse myself in it. So still complicated, but moderately successful. Com complicated, but yeah. I mean, success, <laughs> I don't think failure and success are very useful mm -hmm. here because, you know, if there's a snowstorm, we don't say, did the snowstorm fail or did it succeed? We say it happened and had these and those, the, such and such effects. And I think, you know, we need to get away from this idea of, you know, patting the revolution on the, on the head or, or wagging the finger mm. and say this revolution was consequential. Whether we think of it as a failure or not, it was deeply, deeply consequential. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, thank you very much. And I think we can now open the floor to questions. Really fascinating, very interesting. Um, I'm struck by... uh, uh, one thing you said, and actually you said somewhat different things, both of you. One, Chris, you said the 1848 revolution, and Catherine said the 1848 revolutions. And then later on you said the revolutions as well, Chris. So um, I'm struck by that kind of duality in, mm. in terms of them both um, having similarities but also differences. And it led me to wonder why if there is a kind of contagion going across Europe in that particular time it didn't come across the channel. Or maybe it did, but I'm just not doing that. Across the channel? Across the channel. Yeah. Uh, when you, I thought you said it uh, didn't come across the tunnel, and I was seeing the channel tunnel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but quite, that's right. Um, well, that's a really interesting and important question, much discussed in, in British history. And I suppose my, the shorthand of my answer to that would be, uh, I mean, I remember the answer the teacher gave uh, when I was at school, and that was, well, you know, the British didn't need a revolution because it was already... We, we said we, you know, we're already so liberal. We'd already given everybody everything they wanted, so they didn't need a they didn't need a revolution. And that was the view that you know many Tories took in eighteen in eighteen forty. They said, look at these continentals, you know, kicking up a fuss. He said, we don't need that here because we've, we're, we're it's like those parents who say our children are never going to rebel even when they're teenagers because we're so permissive and nice. Um, well, it, you know, that's not really quite the the, the full story because. Um, you know, when, when the Prussians looked over to um, Britain, what they saw was Europe's most robustly policed society. And they said they've got fantastic policing, uh, especially in Ireland. They're very interested in the Irish Constabulary, which is a paramilitary police operation, far more, uh, far better equipped to deal with tumults and unrest than any of the police forces in Europe. And so in the summer of 1848, the Prussians sent a fact-finding committee to, um, you know, to, to London, then to Cork, Dublin, and all over Ireland to collect information on how the Prussians could improve their policing. Uh, so part of the, and this is an interesting point that Boyd Hilton makes when he talks about the Chartist movement. He says, you know, the Chartist movement didn't collapse under the weight of its own pointlessness, it was brought down by the strong arm of the state. Whenever the Chartists turned up, you know, if you think of Kennington Common, the famous meeting on Kennington, of which that photograph exists, there were 80,000 special constables present at that meeting, uh, armed with, you know, armed with bar, iron bars and, you know, wooden clubs and so on. And in addition to a, a, a troops standing and res- waiting in reserve, and of course police constables, properly uniformed police constables. And among the special constables, though we, he wasn't called into service on Kennington Common, was the future Napoleon III. There were, you know, no other society succeeded in mobilizing such a force in support of its own institutions. And that is in part a consequence 
of liberal achievements in British history. There's no question. But another thing we mustn't forget is a point that was made by a newspaper which in many ways was better in 1848 than it is today, the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, the Sydney Morning Herald, when it commented on the question, you know, why is it that over there in, in, in the old country, on the mother country, they're having a nice time of it, whereas in France there's sort of blood in the streets? And he said, well, the reason is because Britain can shunt its troublemakers off to the colonial outskirts. And he said, that means here in Sydney. And, uh, and we'll wait and see if we, you know, we get a lot of troublemakers coming here in the form of convicts. And, you know, um, in particular convicts who'd been convicted, you know, for partly political reasons. And so, um, you know, the 1848 revolutions trigger in Australia, but also in the Cape Colony, a movement to prevent the transshipment of convicts. And in fact, those movements are quite in themselves quite consequential and play an important role in recalibrating the relationship between both colonies and the Westminster system. So, you know, um, there are lots of reasons. There's a wonderful piece by Miles Taylor about the, the historian, a British historian, about how in 1848 we do see tumults in Britain, but they're on the imperial periphery, not in the mainland, for for complicated reasons having to do with the effects of the the repeal of the coal of the um, Corn Laws and the ability of Britain to keep the price of um, of of key uh, commodities low, commodities which were you know to which working class households were sent, whose prices were. Um, were important for working class households, so, like sugar and flour and so on. So there, is, um, there are lots of different reasons, but it's not got to do simply with the fact that this is a country completely lacking in revolutionary zeal. I mean, the Chartist movement was admired across Europe as a, as a phenomenally successful and well-networked and you know, sophisticated movement of social critique. Um, you mentioned the, uh, it was almost like we're coming out of modernity now. Um, so... I was wondering, beyond the idea that parties are fragmenting, I think you spoke about that, do you see, foresee any other consequences of the end of modernity as you see it, or am I? Well, I think it's the, uh, there, there are various things that are changing right now. I mean, they haven't all got to do with the end of modernity. Um, but, you know, um, when I speak of the end of modernity, by the way, what, uh, I'm really channeling the arguments of, of Bruno Latour, who left us, re he's died now, but um, he wrote a rather extraordinary book in, I think it was 1990, called We Were Never Modern, in which he said, we, we've got to free ourselves from this idea of, that we're modern, because thinking that we're modern is what's led us to sort of poison the planet and, you know, destroy our environment and so on. So the idea is that modernity had itself become a kind of toxic thought, a toxic form of belief, which encouraged bad behaviors and discouraged good behaviors, and that we needed to come out of that idea that we were modern um, in order to, to find our way better, you know, back to a more wholesome relationship with our physical environment. Um, as, a, as, as, you know, so the question was, what, 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 what can you... You mentioned the part of the end of modernity was fragmentation, fragmentation of politics, yeah. Well, I think, yeah, that, that was the one that I had in mind. Um, also, the, you know, the, but the fragmentation of par parties is just one aspect of a much larger process of flux, which has to do with the rise of the social media, for example. I mean, an, an infinitely more complex communicative environment than, than, than our grandparents could possibly imagine. Um, that's also, uh, in, in, a in a sense, a kind of re-emergence out of modernity because, you know, I mean, modernity is just a word, but people who called themselves modernization theorists, people writing in the 60s and 70s, what they used to say was that modernity was about the 
rise of, you know, of, of large, abstract, independent information sources that we call the media, but they meant things like, you know, newspapers and so on. Through the social media, we've seen a collapse of all that or its replacement by um, a much more personalized form of information traffic where people, as it were, work their way into highly tailored sort of bubble-like environments in which the information is tailored to their particular preferences. And that's a return to the source of the kinds of information sourcing people had before modernity started, where they tended to hear from people they agreed with and you know, lived in little bubbles of, of opinion and gossip and, and rumor. Um, so those are, there are just a couple of examples. Another one would be that we've you know, come out of the bipolar stability of the Cold War era, which was sort of disciplined by the standoff between two nuclear superpowers. And we're returning back into, you know, a kind of global multipolarity, which is very, you know, confusing, unpredictable, but which for the people of 1848 was all they knew. You know, they had never, it never occurred to them that you could have a, a world disciplined by a standoff between two, you know, uh, massive powers. So those are just some examples of the ways in which we've... Another thing is that, you know, um, I remember thinking, I remember when I was, at, uh, was not at high school, but I was, I think, no, I must have been actually 13 or 14, and that we were told the story of, you know, how Marie Antoinette heartlessly said on hearing of a, a food riot, she said, well, let them eat cake, right? And I remember thinking, I said to the, student, to the teacher, you know, um, why was that such a bad idea? Because actually, if there isn't any bread, you know, personally, I would prefer cake. Um, why, did, why, why did people resent this? And the teacher sort of, oh, great sigh, look, <clears throat> people only ate bread, right? There was, bread was all they ate and they spent most of their income on bread and grain, there was no way of substituting for grain products. You, you couldn't go from bread to cake because if bread was expensive, cake was even more expensive and so on. So I, um, that was a lesson. I've always remembered it. But the point is that we left the era where it was easy to imagine grain price shocks. Grain price shocks were huge news in the 1830s and 40s. But, you know, in the last couple of years, what have we been reading about? Massive global grain price shocks, um, which have had very deep effects on Ethiopia, across northern Africa, um, the impact of the conflict in the Ukraine on international, the international circulation of grain, um, supply chain um, blockages and issues like that, which were central to unrest in, the, in 1848. So, it's not exactly the end of modernity, but it's the re-entry into a sort of era of dysfunction where our supplies seem to be endangered in a way that for a long time we thought they never would be again. I think we have time for one more question. Um, just going back to your, your sort of initial point about your teacher saying, oh, it's, it's complex and a failure. The idea of um, failure, how much do you think of that, that idea is driven by the experience of those involved and their contemporaries and how much of it is down to the sort of hindsight of subsequent generations of historians? Very interesting question. I think that um, it's both. So I think some contemporaries feel very early on it's a failure. I mean, radical, there are radicals who already in April 1848 are saying, well, that's it, our, our revolution has not succeeded. If you take, for example, the situation that arises when, um, when elections are held with a much broader suffrage, radicals had hoped that once you brought much poorer people in much larger numbers into the electoral process, that would produce radical outcomes. It turned out the opposite was the case. So a lot of these houses, these, these parliamentary chambers that are returned are under expanded suffrages, turn out to be a tremendous disappointment to the left. This is a body blow to the left, which they find it, they really struggle with it. And um, of course, you know, it, it's not difficult to see why this is the case. 
you know, if you simply offer an entire country uh, a vote when there's been no chance for the for the left to 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 you know propagate its views or to make people understand their positions, then you will produce um, you know a, a conservative an image of a conservative nation, and that's what happens almost everywhere. Um, so that sense of failure is felt by some people, not not by all, but you know many people feel it's a tremendous success. For the liberals, by and large, 1848 is a success. They get what they want, um, and for some conservatives like Bismarck, you know, it's a tremendous success for Bismarck, and he spends the rest of his life explaining to people that. You know, 1848 made him the man he was. It seems rather odd, given his kind of reactionary reputation. But he was an 1848er, and he made it quite clear in his memoirs that he could never have entered public life without the sort of leg up created by the revolutions. So, um, you know, a lot of very different factors feed into that. But what's interesting is the other part of your question, uh, people in retrospect looking at it, on it as a failure. There, I think, the idea that it was a failure became important for certain national historiographies, like for the Germans, for example. This German historians in the 60s and 70s and 80s began to put together this narrative called the Sonderweg, or the Special Path. And one of the chapters in that Special Path narrative was the failure of revolution in 1848, the idea that a more radical revolution would have prevented you know, the Nazi seizure of power in 1933, and that one needed to understand this process you know, in the sort of, in the kind of, in the light of that telos, of that final vanishing point of the, of the horror of the Nazi dictatorship. So um, that's a view that no longer appears very plausible, or it certainly doesn't appear as plausible as it once did. But it was one reason why people thought of the, or wanted to argue that the revolutions were a failure. In Italy, there's a similar argument where they say that if there'd been an, a, 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 a successful revolution by which they meant a radical revolution, then we wouldn't have had Mussolini, you know, in 1922 and, and the march on Rome. So, um, you know, the problem with all of these diagnoses is that they all involve picking one horse in the race. And if that horse doesn't win, it's failed. But of course, there were numerous horses in the race. That's the whole point. And revolutions are never just made by revolutionaries. They're always a, a complex you know, um, tussle between old and new powers. But the interesting thing is that even the old powers that are involved in them, the people that we might think of as counter-revolutionaries, they emerge from the revolution changed by it. So there is no road back into that previous you know, prior pre-revolutionary situation. There are people who are reactionaries, but they're very small in number because most people are smart enough to see that you cannot unmake this event. Um, and so everybody is changed by it. That's why I think of the revolution as a, rather than as an event, I think of it as a kind of particle collision chamber at the heart of the 19th century. Everybody who was doing anything flew into this chamber. They got smashed against each other. They got twisted out of shape. Some of them kind of collided and became antimatter. And others got, you know, turned into movements or became leaders of this or that. And then they showered out the other end and sort of can be, their trails can be traced all the way down into the late 19th century. And in some cases into the 20th. So um, that's, I think, a better way of thinking about it than as a failure or a success. Yeah, on that note, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you very much for coming and talking to us about this great and complex event. Katja, thank you so much. Thank you. thank you all for coming. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.